Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 643 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 20th of August 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking about estate planning for authors with Michael Laron, which is a fascinating talk, really interesting, but also very important about how you can put things in place for the future and also how you can get organised today. It will definitely make you think wherever you are in your career, your age or stage. Michael also wanted me to mention that the Author Estate Handbook and the Author Air Handbook, which we will discuss, they're both licensed to the Alliance of Independent Authors, and both ebooks are free to Ally members as part of their membership. So our discussion is coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, the Department of Justice versus Penguin Random House trial has just finished. And I've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. There is no outcome as yet. It's basically trying to stop the acquisition of Simon and Schuster. And Jane Friedman in the hot sheet this week picks out some interesting things. So the Hot Sheet is a great premium newsletter for the publishing industry. You can check it out at hotsheetpub.com. Links in the show notes. So some of the things that Jane picked out, uh, there's some quotes. <laughs> it's just so many great quotes from this trial. It's like they're, as I said last week, they're sort of airing all of this dirty laundry and all of the inside secrets. It's absolutely fascinating. So on hearing that most big advances don't earn out, the judge asked Hachette CEO Michael Pietsch, I think that's how you say it, does your business rely on some of your books wildly overperforming? Yes. It was also revealed that at Penguin Random House, the top 4% of profitable titles drive 60% of profitability. So 4% of profitable titles. So what they're saying is the business is, yes, essentially reliant on some books doing really, really well. And Hachette CEO, uh, same guy, <laughs> Michael Piach says, about half the books they publish make a profit of some kind. So <laughs> I wanted to bring that up for a couple of reasons. Well, one is, like, really, nobody knows. And Macmillan CEO called publishing a business of gambling and of passion. And Simon & Schuster CEO Jonathan Karp said, the idea that any publisher can make a book a bestseller is false. Your success is like taking credit for the weather. So I think in a way this makes us feel like, what? This is crazy. So it really is throwing spaghetti against a wall and seeing what sticks. And if it sticks and makes a profit, yay, it's good for everyone. But also that half the books they publish make a profit of some kind. So half of them don't. <laughs> so books that don't earn out are, you know, 50%. And then in terms of making a profit, only 4% of those that do make a profit drive most profitability. So it really is this kind of case that some books do really well, but most books don't. And in the one way, it, it is that literary lottery thing. But two, I also think we have to look at our own catalogue in that way. So I have like 35 books or something now. And it's true, like not 
every single book does really well. You can't divide your income in, uh, exactly between all the books you have. And I think this is important for authors to remember too. So if you do write a book and nothing really happens, it was like you, you write a book, you self-publish it, and you sell not very many copies. Well, that's quite normal. Clearly, that's normal for traditional publishing too. So let's not <laughs> let's not take all of the credit or uh, take all of the blame if our books don't do that well because it seems like exactly the same thing happens in traditional publishing going on from the notes uh carp said so that simon and schuster ceo jonathan carp says simon and schuster would be foolish to make any kind of sales and marketing promises because results are often outside of their control the trial has made it clear that publishers don't support all books equally and HarperCollins CEO Brian Murray was asked why the publisher doesn't try to make all books successful. And they explained that imprints and editors get a pool of money and they have to decide how to allocate that money across the books. So there really there's so much gold in these transcripts of things and analyses of things to really get the understanding of how traditional publishing works. They also <laughs> talked about how things have changed with Amazon imprints. So Colleen Hoover, who really is just doing incredibly well right now, um, I think they're calling her the queen of TikTok, but Colleen started in in the indie space and she's now, I guess, hybrid, but she is published by Amazon imprint Montlake for one of her books or maybe more, but it recently landed on the American Booksellers Association's bestseller lists. And essentially now independent bookstores are carrying and selling Amazon published titles. And um, the Simon & Schuster CEO said, the Rubicon has been crossed. And uh, because it previously was really thought that no bookstore would carry Amazon titles, but clearly they now are. He also said that Amazon's bestseller list is more important than the New York Times bestseller list, which is kind of crazy. And Simon & Schuster bases many of its acquisitions on Amazon sales data. So that is interesting indeed. Jane in the hot sheet also has a breakdown of why Podium Publishing, an audiobook company, bought Bookstat in the last few weeks, which monitors real-time book sales data. And uh, if you've been around as long as I have or longer, you'll remember author earnings, which is where Bookstat started. It started out looking at indie author earnings and then moved into the big leagues and now only deals with big publishers. But what they said, um, the quote here, when we look at the volume that's being published on any given week, 20,000 new books on Kindle. <laughs> the idea that you can manually cull through as an editor and identify the next great hit from an art form perspective is just naive. So I wanted to include that quote because 20,000 new books on Kindle per week is what we're talking about. And I was thinking about this week because uh, you when we see the media, so was, there was an example this week of someone again on TikTok who was like, any publishers want my book? And now the, the woman has been given a big book deal and attracted a movie deal from TikTok. And it's too easy for us to look at things like this and go, oh, well, if I put my book on Amazon and I go on TikTok and I do the same things, then I will get the same result. And as much as, you know, the lightning strike is brilliant if it happens to you, but you cannot build a business on the lightning strike. You have to build a business on putting out books 
having a backlist and not counting on a lightning strike. I mean, if you want the lightning strike, keep your day job, <laughs> is what I'm saying. And of course, keeping your day job might be the plan. But I think 20,000 books a week on Kindle is uh, crazy. And yeah, what they also, another quote in there says, the untracked part of the market is still expanding like gangbusters. And uh, they just mentioned established authors like Jim Butcher, uh, doing self-published work alongside traditional deals because uh, he self-published his latest novella. So yeah, I have to think, all I can think here is that we have to concentrate on writing the books we love, building our own audiences, and yeah, don't expect to upload a book to Kindle and expect your books to be found. We have to give people a reason to care enough to notice our creative work. So I also wanted to uh, point to two books out this week because there's definitely a feeling in the air about going direct. One book uh, called Direct by Catherine Judge is long listed for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year, which is really a big deal here in the UK. And uh, from the blurb of that book, middlemen today shape what people do, how they invest and what they consume. They use their troves of data to push people to buy more and more expensive products. They use their massive profits and expertise to lobby lawmakers, tilting the playing field in their favour. Drawing on a decade of research, Judge shows how to fight back. Go to the source. The process of direct exchange and the resulting ecosystem of makers and consumers, investors and entrepreneurs fosters connection and community and helps promote a more just, resilient and accountable economic system. Direct exchange reminds us that our actions always and inevitably impact others as it rekindles an appreciation of our inherent interconnectedness. So that is a book, a sort of zeitgeisty book, uh, all about going direct, so buying direct from creators as well as direct from smaller companies and that kind of thing. Also, Cory Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, who's been on this uh, show before, um, they have a new book, they ha have a Kickstarter out with a book that's coming called Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labour Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. Actually, their blurb starts out by looking at uh, publishing, saying the big six trade publishers became the big five and that behemoth is fighting to make it the big four by swallowing Simon & Schuster as well. Amazon controls the online market for a growing number of consumer goods, starting with books, then taking over ebooks and now audiobooks too. We show how big tech and big content erect choke points between creators and audiences, allowing them to lock in artists and producers, eliminate competition and extract far more than their fair share of revenue from creative labour. Choke point capitalism is built around shovel-ready ideas for shattering the choke points that squeeze creators and audiences, technical, commercial and legal blueprints for artists, fans, arts organisations, technologists and governments to fundamentally restructure the broken markets for creative labour. So that is a Kickstarter and again, link in the show notes, but it's Kickstarter um, for choke point capitalism and the book Direct by, who did I just say, Catherine Judge. So really interesting time. And there's, so there's definitely a growing movement towards things changing, breaking the monopolies of the big tech companies, moving towards much more value for creators, which can only be a good thing for us. 
So in my personal update, I guess on that same theme, I have been recording and editing my creator economy mini course, which I will finish this week. I'll announce it in in next week's show. But basically, yeah, that is almost finished. And I'm really, I'm really happy with it. It definitely feels like a zeitgeisty thing, as I just mentioned with those books. And what's happening is creators taking back, hopefully, more of the power. And as I've always said, using all of these different platforms, but also building things for us where we can take a bigger share of the pie. So talking of that, I got my edits back uh, for Soldiers of God, which is a short story. It's about seven and a half thousand words. So it's sort of mediumly short story. And it is now available as an ebook on creativepenbooks.com. Yes, my website. And also it's on pre-order everywhere. It will be available on all the usual stores from the next week, basically the 29th of August. It's a standalone story in my arcane world with one of my very popular side characters. Here's the description. When arcane archivist Martin Klein joins the Vatican Digital Archiving Project, he finds an ancient letter, mistakenly scanned along with the medieval papal decree Militia Dei, Soldiers of God. It points to a dark secret the Knights Templar once tried to erase from existence – hidden in a medieval fortress under the heart of Paris for almost a thousand years. As Martin follows the trail to the hidden Templar crypt, aided by biblical scholar Kamara Mbaye, they discover something unspeakable in the vaults below Paris. Who are the soldiers of God, and why must they rest until needed? So this is a short story featuring Martin Klein and Dr. Kamara Mbaye from My Arcane World. It fits after Tomb of Relics, book 12 of the action-adventure thriller series, but can be read as a standalone story. Available now on creativepenbooks.com and on pre-order at the usual stores. Available 29th of August 2022. So yes, I'm doing one week direct only and it will also be cheaper on my store unless various places price match, of course. (laughs) Delivered by BookFunnel, read on any device. So that is Soldiers of God by J.F. Penn, my fiction self. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments over the last week. Rick Grant left a comment already on the Google Auto Narration episode, which only came out yesterday as I record this. He said basically that he narrated his first book, uh, having worked as a television and radio journalist and producer. My voice was one of my prime journalistic tools. But about a month and a half ago, the gods laughed in my face and I developed laryngitis, effectively losing my voice. My second book is stalled because I can't record the draft. It's obliterated my plans for launching a podcast. Fortunately, I listened to this week's conversation with Ryan Dingler and the heavy depression overcast on me for so long started to break, which makes me just thrilled, Rick. I'm so thrilled. I intend to make use of Google's technology to help with making sure that a more than decent version of Shark Flight will be available during the general launch. I also think Google can help with podcast scripts. When my voice returns to full use, I will record a human voice version uh, for for places that don't accept machine-aided editions. A most informative and useful podcast. I'm so glad you found that useful. Also, thanks to T.A. Creech, who uh, sent a picture. He said, he or she, sorry, I don't know. um, Still ploughing through the backlist while at the day job. At least it's cold while I'm stocking the beer in hot as the seventh circle Tucson and uh, sent a picture from the fridge. (laughs) I love the multitasking there. 
And finally, S.W. Miller said, I need two things to remain sane in the day job, black coffee and the Creative Pen podcast. Thank you. Listening to Joanna always lights the writer fire under me and convinces me there is a way to make a living at this. And a picture of black coffee, which I drink a lot of black coffee, plus the occasional flat white in cafes. But yeah, there is a way to making a living at this. And I did want to say, as ever, I'm a multiple stream of income girl. I'm a very, very wide, <laughs> publishing wide type of person. I, I, I love this industry. And while, while I'm passing comment on the, the sort of traditional publishing side, it, it's still a world that I love and support. And I buy tons of traditionally published books as well as tons of indie books. So I'm never saying that that's not a possible way. I just think considering a lightning strike as a way to make a living is uh, should more be cons- considered extra. I mean, we all would love a lightning strike. I would love one too, <laughs> but I'm not going to build my business on it. So remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening, email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by draft to digital which I use to publish to Nook, Library Services and other ebook platforms where I don't go direct. I'll play a word from Kevin Tomlinson in a minute. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time is sponsored by my patrons who also support my in-between episodes. And uh, thanks to new patron this week, Alan P. Aguilera, and also thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. And of course, if you are a patron, you get the extra Q&A audio. And I also announce things early to my patrons and I always have coupons to get um, money off various things. You can support the show with just a few dollars, a few pounds or euros or whatever currency you are these days and uh, you will get that extra monthly Q&A audio and percentages off things. Support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from draft to digital and then we'll get on with the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital bringing you DDD smart author tip number 12. Book promotions. Yeah, you heard me. Reaching more readers worldwide on every ebook retailer online is one of the biggest challenges you face as an indie author. And D2D is all about giving you the tools you need to meet all of your self publishing challenges. That's why we've been building a whole set of tools for you, all aimed at helping you reach more readers in more places to increase discoverability for yourself and for your books. From author pages to book tabs, reading lists to scheduled promotions, we've built a whole toolbox to help you with your marketing. And we aren't stopping there. We're actively talking to our retailers to find as many promos as we can and passing them on to you. And as we go, we grow. Building more author marketing tools is part of our mission. draft to digital We are self-publishing with support. Find more at d2d.tips slash creative pen. That's pen with two N's because we're big on the numeral two around here. 
Michael Laron is the author of over 80 books across science fiction, fantasy, and self-help books for authors, including The Author Estate Handbook, How to Organize Your Affairs and Leave a Legacy, and The Author Heir Handbook, How to Manage an Author Estate, which we're talking about today. So welcome back to the show, Michael. Hi, Joanna. Great to be back. Oh, yes. And (laughs) this is such an interesting topic. You've been on the show several times before, so we're going to just jump straight into it today. So start out by telling us, why did you want to write about this topic of estates and heirs, basically death? And how does your professional and personal background play into that? Yes, I have this morbid fascination with death. um, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) this, This is something I've been thinking about in the back of my head that has woken me up a few times in the middle of the night. And I didn't know what to do about what would happen if I suffered an untimely death. And I think a lot of authors have this problem. And I think a lot of authors react the same way as I do, or I did, which was just to go back to bed and forget about it and continue to bury your head in the sand. And I had a a wake-up call in, in 2021. I lost a grandfather to old age. And when he passed away, he passed away like a gangster. I don't know how else to say it. He he left such a clean estate. He had a will that had everything cleanly outlined. He told everyone before he passed that he didn't want to be a burden to the family and he was true to his word. And everything with his estate was settled in like 6 months, which if you've ever had someone pass away, you know that that is blazing fast to have everything settled. And I just had I was in such admiration and in awe of how my grandfather did that and, and ultimately how kind he was to be so organized. And I started thinking to myself, how could I do the same thing with my own business and my own writing? Because there's a big difference. My, my grandfather was born in the Great Depression and he never owned a computer, never had an email account. So in many respects, things were a lot easier for him. And when I look at my, my own career and my own self and my own things that I have going on in the 21st century, I realized that dying like he did is a phenomenal challenge. And so I realized that I had to do it. And I have a a unique background in that I'm an executive at a global insurance company, and I've made my living helping businesses prepare for disasters. And I also went to law school. I'm not an attorney, but I have a legal education. So I'm not afraid of the legal side of things. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go on my journey to figure out how I'm going to do this for myself. And so I'm going to write a book and try to help other people through it as well. Mm, a couple of things there. When you said your grandfather died like a gangster, I was thinking in like a hail of bullets outside. Oh, Tom yeah, yeah. Speaking. No, no, it's an American idiom, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, in my mind, that's a hell of a way to go. But you said he died Indeed. of old age, so I guess it wasn't so dramatic. And, and also that he said he didn't want to be a burden. And I think a lot of us feel that way. And I definitely feel that way. My mum is so organized in this. My mum is still alive. In fact, she's off gallivanting the world at the moment. But every time she leaves her flat she tidies everything and cleans everything and puts her all her paperwork on her desk in case she never comes back again and she's already prepaid for her funeral and all this stuff and so we talk about this and I know that a lot of people don't have that in their family so I feel like almost before we get into the details let's just tackle the emotional side of this like you said you woke up in the middle of the night you have a daughter obviously you have you have family 
if people are feeling like, oh, this is too emotional, too difficult, my family doesn't talk about death, my partner doesn't talk about death, how should we approach this in a sort of on the emotional level? Yeah, it's tough because you have to come to terms with your mortality. And for a lot of us, the I wouldn't say the biggest part, but a very important part of our legacy is our books. You know, I mean, for me, it's extremely important to me to be a good father and good husband and make sure that I'm leaving behind a world that's a little bit better than I found it. But also a book that, a, my books are an important part of that because they continue to help people every day. And I know that that, that will also be an income stream for my family. And I think that if you are struggling to have that conversation, I think you have to have the conversation. There's never a good time, but the good thing is that it's never too late and it's never too early. I was going to say, it is too late if, you, if you're dead. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're dead. But, but if you're breathing, if you're fogging up a mirror, it's not too late. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think probably the COVID-19 pandemic has given almost an excuse to be able to talk about it because people, like you mentioned, an untimely death. I mean, you're younger than me. I'm in my late 40s, but I certainly don't expect to be popping off for a while. But we do plan these things just in case because you never know whether it's a pandemic or an accident or something else that comes out the blue. Having this stuff set up early I mean, there's enough to deal with when someone dies emotionally, you know, to, to, to have to bother with a whole load of business stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's actually exactly. an act of, it's an act of love to sort this stuff out, right? Oh, absolutely. It, and it's an act of kindness and it's an act of empathy because I, I think a lot of people can relate to what I'm about to say. And that is that you put your heart and soul into your writing. And your spouse or whoever is going to take over things when you're gone probably has no idea what you do every day, at least certainly not at the, the micro level. They might know you write books. They know you publish those books. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day tactical stuff, they don't know. And just imagine how stressed out an error would be if, not if, but when they're going to have to, if you're a wide author, they're going to have to log into all your dashboards to figure out what's going on. They're going to have to, if you're doing pay-per-click advertising, they're going to have to learn that. It, 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 there's all sorts of things they have to learn. And so I think you have to have some empathy for what you're about to put them through and have the conversation because for some heirs, that might be more than they want to bear. Mm, no, absolutely. Right. We'll come back to that. But obviously, when people are making so it's in terms of a will, we're not going to go into everything. But there's some paperwork that should at least be in place. So for example, we've seen, and obviously, we're not Prince, we're not Aretha Franklin. But there are cases where artists who have valuable intellectual property have not made a will. And like you said, these things can get locked up for a long time. And there can be fights over it. And family members can fall out over the potential of these things. So it, there's lots of things to put in a will, isn't there? And also like what happens in America or, you know, what where you know about uh, if you don't have a will in the UK, for example, sometimes the government can take more than one would like them to. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. In the UK in particular, it's kind of, kind of crazy. I think sometimes stuff can pass on to the crown if you're not, uh, Yep, you don't have a will. Absolutely. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did some research for the UK when I was writing this book. Well, what happens, what happens when you don't have a will in the United States is that the state will determine what happens to your property. 
And I think we can all agree that that is a terrible idea. <laughs> yes. And the reason you draft a will is that you get that control over who gets what. And that includes the copyrights to your book. And what can end up happening is some unfortunate scenarios where your copyrights could be divided up amongst your heirs in ways that you didn't intend. And the most important thing is to make sure you keep your copyrights together so they can be managed mm. together. So, yeah, you can have some really unintended consequences, particularly if you've got an estate attorney or a court that doesn't understand copyright. Mm. And then I just also wanted to mention, like, totally practical, if you've got pensions, 401ks, here they're called, uh, we also have ICES, you have IRAs, there's this form you have to fill in on all of these different platforms that says who gets your money, basically, if you die. And if you do all this stuff privately, like I do, like many of us authors do, then you want to make sure you fill those forms in. <laughs> yes, fill those forms in and keep them up to date. <laughs> that's yes, that's criti critical. <laughs> And you mentioned a will, Joanna. Another thing that is just as important is a living will. So when mm. people think of wills, they think of your last will, which is what happens to your property and, and everything when you die. But equally as important, if not more important, is your living will, which is what happens if you were to end up in a vegetative state or you were in a coma or you can't make decisions for yourself. That gives a trusted person the ability to make those decisions on your behalf. And we refer to that here in the United States as a power of attorney. It's something that you can get, but also what happens if, if you end up in a state where you're in a coma and you're, it's the chances of you making it are almost none. What do you want that person to do? Do you want them to pull the plug or do you want them to keep you on life support in the off chance that you do make it? These are tough conversations, but these are things that can be settled really quickly with an attorney. And once you do them, you don't have to worry about them anymore. Mm, yeah. And I care about that very much. And we did those, Jonathan and I. And also if we were in an accident together, then who makes the next decision? And to me, that's almost more important. Like I, because here in the UK, if you don't have a power of attorney, the doctor can override your spouse. Wow. So that, this is a really important, and we have two, one is health and one is finance. So you can give someone health jurisdiction over you, say, if you get dementia or something, and then the money one is, is separate. So the, again, these are all difficult conversations, but it is far worse for someone, for your partner who loves you or your children or whoever to deal with these questions. If something happens, um, well, none of us expect <laughs> we'll expect it to happen, right? And maybe your granddad did because he was late in life. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, no one knows. No one knows when their time ultimately is going to come. And another thing that's important to point out is is do this now while you're in good health, because mm. if you're in poor health, it's going to be a lot harder to make these decisions. So you can take a few steps at a time. You don't have to do it all tomorrow. That's the beauty of it. It estate planning is a lifelong journey, and as long as you take those steps. At some point, it's important. Mm, and actually, I think it's a bit like like learning about publishing or whatever. You when you do it when you're just starting out, like if you have a very simple setup, it's much easier to get started with a simple will. And then over time, as it gets more complicated, you can sort that out. So, like I'm looking at maybe doing a trust or something like that at some point. But let's just take a step back and start with this something simple. An author has a few books up on the stores, not a lot of revenue. <laughs> so they might even feel like, what is the point of even putting this in a letter or whatever? So what should the author with just a basic beginning sort of business do? 
they should do the same thing that any author would do, which in my opinion, the first thing is to have that conversation with your heir and figure out at what level and how much resources and time and energy your heir wants to put into the writing business. That will ultimately dictate how you plan because there are going to be a lot of heirs who just say, I just want the money. You know, I just, I just want to make sure the money is available and that's going to guide your decisions. If, if the heir wants to play a more active role in the business, then that's going to dictate maybe some of the other things that you might want to help them do. But once you've had that conversation, there's just a few things that I, I would think about. The first thing is making sure that they have access to all your passwords. So passwords to your email accounts, passwords to your book retailer accounts, and we can talk about passwords here in a little bit. And then also making sure that you call your bank and figure out what happens to your bank account when you die. So when you die, your bank will freeze your assets. And depending on how you have your bank account set up, and it, it could vary depending on which country you live in, there are some steps you can take to make sure that your bank doesn't freeze your account so that your heirs will continue to have access to the money and it won't get hung up, essentially. So that's another thing that I would do if I just had just a few books and just wanted to make sure that they were available for the heirs and that the heirs could continue getting the money. And then at that point, the really the ball is in the heirs court. You know, the books continue to be available. They continue to be for sale. They continue to make the money. And if the heir wants to do more with that, great. If they want to just ride out the sales until they drop down, then that's just how it goes. But it, it, ultimately, it I, I'm just trying to really impose on the importance of making sure you understand what the heir wants. Because I think we can, we have a tendency as authors to think about what we want and what's best for the book. But if you don't think about your error, then you have a mismatch and that that can cause issues as well. Mm, okay. A few things to come back on. First of all, that bank account. So you said your bank account will be frozen. Now, I've heard that before as well. Like when my great auntie died, that that's what happened. But she was a single woman, a private individual. So I compare that to me and probably you where I'm married. So my husband, we have a joint bank account, a joint personal bank account. So if I died, then my husband is still, that's still his bank account too. And then my company bank account is in the name of a UK limited company with directors. So that's not my personal bank account. That is the company's bank account. So I don't imagine that would be frozen either. So because again, I'm just a director, that's not my personal account. So when you talk about that, is that actually what happens or what would happen like in your situation as well? Well, it, it, the way you described it, it was fantastic, Joanna. So it, it depends on how, like I said, you set your bank account up. So like in the case of a married joint bank account, here in the United States, there's basically, it depends on which state you live in, but there are two different types. There's joint bank account with rights of survivorship, which means that if I die, then my wife automatically gets everything in the account and it's as she has full access to it. But there's also joint tenancy. And what essentially happens there is when you die, your assets in the bank account get frozen and they get passed on according to how your will is written. And so you have to know what kind of bank account you have because that can make a big difference. Now, if you've done the right thing and you've opened up a bank account in the name of your business, then it's worth having a conversation with your attorney to figure out what the succession looks like. 
Because if you've got a proper succession plan, then that will help you get around this issue as well. So I hate to be the lawyerly person here and say it depends and you need to talk to an attorney about it, but you really do need to talk to an attorney because depending on where you live, depending on what your financial situation is, it could look a little bit different. But just know that, and I talk about this in the author estate handbook, there are different types of bank accounts and and different things that you can do to get around this issue. And it's an important one to solve because all the money that's in your bank account right now is all the money that's in your bank account right now. But if your bank account happens to get closed, then suddenly your retailers are not going to have anywhere to deposit your future royalties. So you have to think about that too. Mm, no, that's a good call. And again, if I died separately to Jonathan, everything would be fine. <laughs> well, yeah. obviously not. But if we went together, then I see a gap in my in my business succession plan, as you mentioned there. So that's a good one. Let's come on to passwords. So this is an absolute nightmare, even as a living person. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I mean, it really is. Uh, a few years ago, we moved on to Dropbox for our file system, and we use one password. There are lots of different password managers now. What are your thoughts on this? And you also have a resource, don't you? Yes. I I highly recommend a password manager. And the reason for that is there are a lot of people who use the same password on all your sites. One, that's a security issue, right? Because if you get hacked, they're going to have access to all of your information. But two, the reason I recommend password managers is because They give you secure passwords. You enjoy very good security, but then you can also use them as an estate managing tool. So what I do is in in my, I use one password too, Joanna. And what I do is in, I actually have all of my accounts organized by what I want my heir to do with them when I die. So accounts that get canceled, they go into one category accounts that they need to make sure that they maintain go into another category. And so that can be a wonderful way to, to help you get organized. And the best tool though, the best feature that they offer is they offer an emergency access feature. So for example, if you happen to get locked out of your password manager, one password, LastPass, they all offer this. Essentially what they do is you can designate a trusted contact and then that contact will automatically get access into your vault and they'll have access to all of your passwords. So imagine an untimely death, your spouse can just basically get into one password, get access to all your passwords and never have to worry about it, which is critical. The other thing about passwords that I I want people to think about, because this is a particularly dangerous thing that can wreck your estate, is two-factor authentication. I was going to mention this, the fact that you need a phone. (laughs) Yeah. And I bet a lot of people listening to this have gotten that one-time passcode on their phones and never thought once about what would happen if their phone got disconnected. Because if you can't get that passcode, your heirs can't get into your account, even if they have your username and password. So this is a danger that you have to to plan for. And I I have a whole chapter in the book. I talk about two-factor authentication because it's a little techie. It's a a very technical thing, but be careful. And at a minimum, I would just make sure that you let your heirs know under no circumstances should they disconnect your phone line after you die until they've had a chance to change all your phone numbers over. Because yes. that that will be a huge, huge problem in the future. Yes, and you're totally right. We, Jonathan and I have talked about this as well because there's so many things now where there's face recognition and, like you say, the, the two-factor thing and the numbers have all changed and the devices have all changed. It's hard enough to 
keep track of when it is your your own stuff, isn't it? But right. I love how you've done that. I mean, it does. What's so funny as well is I think about. Uh, I do have a letter that I did a while back, but I haven't updated it for a while. And a whole load of the things that I use have changed. So even as we speak, as we record this, I've recently put my Shopify store up, creativepenbooks.com. And so I've stopped using payhip.com. And so I, but I haven't yet cancelled it because I'm still over sort of in a cutover period type of thing. But our businesses change over time, don't they? We, we, take on new tools we get rid of old tools and so it's almost like we need this list for ourselves because the business goes bigger and bigger and bigger doesn't it over time it does and I, I mentioned that I have a resource it's included in the author estate handbook and it's an organizer that it's basically an Excel organizer that you can fill in the blanks so emergency contacts listing all your social media accounts, listing all your email addresses, passwords, all the critical things that you can think of helps you just get organized and corral everything. Because that's what this is like. It's like corralling cats who don't want to be corralled. <laughs> because mm. being being organized, that's the hardest part of estate management. Because you can come up with the will relatively easily. You just got to hire an attorney and they'll help you with it. But it's the organization part. Your attorney's not going to help you with that. And getting organized, I think, is the hardest part. And so just being able to have a resource where you and your heirs can find everything in one place, that's something to aspire to and a very critical tool. But yeah, there's a lot. And I, I would recommend reviewing it at least once a year, You know, whatever tool you decide to use, but whatever methods you use, review once a year or when you have a major life change. Because as you pointed out, things change all the time in publishing especially with our businesses. Yeah. And I mean, a good time might be the end of the tax year. Like I've just been through my accounts and you're looking at your profit and loss, or you're looking at your bank statements and you're going, what is that payment? Like that monthly payment, do I still need to make that one? And because there's so many of these subscription programs now that we use, that it's good to sort of review that. So no, this is a great conversation. I'm finding it useful. I think lots of people are finding it useful. <laughs> but that's the other thing you mentioned there was what does your air want. And I mean, I already know, like Jonathan worked in my business for a couple of years. My husband worked in the business and it, he wasn't interested. He's He loves reading, but he's not interested in running a publishing company. He's gone back to work in pharmaceuticals. And so even if it's just me who dies, let alone both of us at the same time, you know, then I know he doesn't want to run the business. And then we are happily child-free, but my siblings, so I have lots of siblings they don't want to run a publishing business either so what I actually have on my letter is try and sell my whole business try and sell my copyrights and my website and everything because I don't think anyone's going to run it so that's me really putting myself in that, their perspective. And as much as it pains me, I actually think that's probably the best thing. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's tough. And it's, it, it's, it's especially tough when you don't have someone who is going to continue or who wants to continue the business. In most cases, knowing what I know about copyright, it, it's hard to recommend selling your copyright. But I think in certain circumstances like this one, maybe it makes sense. And the it's, hard part is that there are no good answers right now. Like I, I don't even know if I passed away, I don't even know who I would sell my copyrights to. 
if I wanted to do it. Right. So I, I do think that there's a potential there's, there, I think the landscape is going to look differently or it's going to look different in the future. I've heard of some people also either like licensing or bequeathing their copyrights to universities and nonprofits as well. That's something that I've heard people do too. Although that can really be terrible. Like James Michener, a few years ago, like James Michener is a dead <laughs> historical writer, wrote epics. And I love his book, The Source. And it it was not in Kindle edition. It must have been 2014. I was like, right, I need to get this out in Kindle. And I tried to track down his estate and it turned out to be some his old university, as you say. And I thought I'd be great to get... <laughs> permission to publish this book from James Michener. Anyway, they said, oh, HarperCollins or whoever it was, big publisher own, we have licensed it to them. And I I emailed them back and said, but it's not been published. And I am a fan and it is not in Kindle. And Michener wrote books that are thousands of pages, like super, super huge books, doorstops. And so I'm like, they are, then this is not a great management of your... (laughs) of your estate that is owned by this university. So it's like, even if you leave it to so-called prestigious whoever, they're not necessarily going to manage it in the way that that we would like. So, But it's interesting because at the moment we're hearing like Bob Dylan in 2020 uh, sold all of his backlist uh, for an undisclosed sum and lots of musicians are selling their backlist and they're, you know, obviously Dylan's closer to official getting old than you and I are. But selling it now, he has got the money and also his family presumably can make the most of it now as opposed to fighting over it later. So do you think this is something that could emerge in the indie author market as in we could have this kind of thing where when an author dies who's sort of well-known in the indie arena, we have some kind of process where we could sell or express interest in their IP? Possibly, but I, I think it comes with some cautionary words. I think the musicians that are doing it, I think they're doing it for the reasons that make the most sense for them. I, I do think, though, that they could be setting a bad example for other creatives and artists in, in that copyright is best licensed. So if if you can, I mean, you just have to remember that you can make money from your copyrights for your life plus 70 years and even beyond that. And if you can find somebody in your family that is willing to take that on, that's great. But if you can't, then I understand. But I also think that there is a potential, there's some market opportunities here. I I think one, for authors that are fairly successful, I do think that there is a market for being able to hire an estate manager that takes care of the day-to-day operations and you just pay them you know, percentage of sales and they manage the operations. And then the, the only thing the heir has to do is just monitor the estate manager. There are some people that are, are doing that but today, but I, I think that it it's hard because it's difficult to grant access to like your book retailers mm. and stuff without giving access to your bank account info. So I think if that problem could get solved, then I do think that there is a market for people who could become estate managers and help families with this particular problem. I also think that if you pick your favorite dead author, James Mishner aside, <laughs> they're probably you're probably able to read their books because a traditional publisher continued distributing them yes. after their death. Mm-hmm. So I also think that there is a potential opportunity for a company that could serve kind of like a traditional publisher, but for when you die. 
So their sole purpose would be to work with heirs. Heirs would license the rights to your books to this company, not sell, but they would license the rights to this company for distribution. The companies, the company would keep the books in print, keep them discoverable, take care of any issues that come up with retailers, take a cut of the sales, and then pass the proceeds on to the heirs. I think mm. that would be a if if the company was ethical and they did things correctly, I think that that would be a very elegant way to solve this problem. And I think that there would be a really big opportunity because I don't think enough prominent self-published authors have died yet for this to really be on people's radar. But Yes. And it, it is interesting because, of course, this does exist and it's called agents. This is what agents do. A lot of agencies started when the original agent took on a friend's book right. <laughs> and then the agency grew into a business and then the original agent died and then the agency continues and many of the agencies make a lot of money from dead authors and I actually went to a rights licensing conference once and they were kind of talking about I think they were talking about Enid Blyton or one of the dead authors whose books just keeps making money oh I think it was Enid Blyton because the signature her signature is trademarked the actual her handwritten signature is also a trademark wow and that still goes on books stuff like that was really interesting and they they were actually saying how much easier it is to license dead authors <laughs> because the author is not around to say what they want out of the situation so right. I I think you're I think you're right. I mean, we need an agency for dead indie authors or we need the estate management or whatever it is. But you and I know, and everyone listening, we know that most indie authors don't make enough money to make it worthwhile to take a cut of, let's say, 15%. Right. So therefore, <laughs> it becomes, well, like you said, it's only big name indie authors who could kind of get away with that. And then we're back to where we were. But what I was thinking was if if there was almost a brokerage for this kind of thing, and then you see someone, if you can buy up some estate, you can actually grow into a bigger business rather than each individual sort of focusing on their own stuff. And I don't know, I think uh, like you, I think there's a lot of opportunity here, but does anyone want to run it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely have to have a, a law background because you might be in court a lot because uh, heirs get into fights and <laughs> those yeah. sorts of things. And there's the other piece of it as well. And it's something that I think we have a responsibility to educate our heirs on is avoiding scams. Because mm. anytime you start selling IP, I think that's a vulture's market. You have to be really careful. And especially if you're not a big name author, because you could you can end up selling your copyrights for pennies on the dollar. And the the amount that you sell for could be penny, could, like I say, could be a pittance compared to what your heirs could make if they were educated and were able to to run just a few basic things themselves. Mm. This is also why I'm excited about the potential of blockchain technology because I see how it could work where let's say there is a registration chain of which I'm actually interviewing someone after this about a registration chain and then a distribution chain. And the great thing about smart contracts on a blockchain is they automatically execute. And if if you could program into some master smart contract, how things should happen once you're dead, then that could be a way to deal with all of this without having to do all the stuff that we have to do now, because in web two, you have to log into all these things and you have to move things around bank accounts and stuff. Whereas with blockchain it could, with, and smart contracts, this could be more easily done. But unfortunately, I think we're probably at least a decade away from that being more of a reality. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. We're <laughs> early here. I, I think in, in 10 to 15, 20 years, I, I think the landscape will be much different. I think we'll be having a lot different conversations around estate planning and hopefully to your point, smart contracts and different things will allow authors to make this a lot simpler than it is now. Because ultimately that's the most important thing we have to do is we have to simplify things for our heirs. Mm. And it's not easy to do that right now in today's environment, (laughs) but hopefully that day is coming. Yeah. And in the meantime, everyone, let's at least stay alive another decade. <laughs> yes. Stay alive. No, not another decade. Let's stay alive forever. Then, that, then, then this goes away. So, uh, well, then we have a whole different conversation about environmental and ethical problems around staying alive forever. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that indeed. is a sci fi, a lot of sci fi novels in there. And that's another conversation. But tell us where can people find the books and everything you do online? Yes. Well, my, my home base is authorlevelup.com. If you're interested in grabbing the author estate handbook, you can find that at authorlevelup.com slash estate handbook. That book basically is, I tried to write as nitty gritty and comprehensive of a book on this topic as I could. It kind of holds your hand, goes through all the different elements of a writing business that you should think about and helping you get organized. And then I also wrote another book called The Author Air Handbook. And that book is a plain English explanation of author businesses for your heirs. So you can pick up both books, one for you, one for your heir. And they're both available in ebook, paperback, hardcover, large print, and audio. So wherever you get your books. So authorlevelup.com slash estate handbook. Mm, I have them in ebook. I'm going to go get paperbacks and put a copy with my, my letter in my drawer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's great. It's it's an easy thing to do. Just slip it in your safe deposit box or with the letter. So yeah, there we go. For, uh, nice one. To follow. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. That was great. Thank you, Joanna. Great to be here. So I hope you found the discussion with Michael interesting and that it gave you lots to think about. And obviously, I hope for all of us, it's long term thinking, but we are all going to get there eventually. (laughs) So we might as well plan for it. And remember, if you're a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors, both the Author Estate Handbook and the Author Air Handbook are free as part of your membership in the membership area. And they're also available on all the usual stores. So next Monday, I'll be doing a solo show on my lessons learned from 11 years as a full-time author entrepreneur. Yes, I am coming up to my 11th anniversary of leaving my old job and it won't actually be long. I was a uh, business consultant for 13 years. So we are just a couple of years away from me being as long in my second career as I was in my first career. And uh, also remember this week, you can get Soldiers of God, an arcane short story right now at creativepenbooks.com and also on pre-order for 29th of August at the usual ebook stores. So in the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.